Well, I was telling someone this morning that our, they asked, how was your holiday? And it was really awesome because I came out to the Christmas Eve service and then we went home and I went out yesterday and that was it. <laughs> I was getting a little cabin fever on Thursday and then it started snowing. I was like, oh, I think I'll go get some milk today. And it snowed and it snowed and it snowed and we live in Lappy, so it snowed even more. And we have like a foot and a half of snow. <laughs> so yeah, it was really nice to get out yesterday and it's really nice to be around other humans other than my own immediate family today. Thank you especially to those of you who are here today and carrying some grief or some heavy emotions. I was surprised, it's been a number of years now that we have lost dear friends or family members right before or right after Christmas. And you know, you'd think you'd learn the lesson that that's really hard, but every year, or for the past five years I guess, I just go into this place of like, oh yeah, it comes back. It comes back to our bodies, it comes back to our minds, it come back, comes back to our thoughts. And this year, I just really was like, I'm just going to ride the rhythm. <laughs> and so I rode the rhythm, and it was wonderful and hard. It was beautiful to just think of people we're missing, honor them, and then also get up and enjoy Christmas and enjoy my family and enjoy loved ones. So if you today had to do that, kind of get up and get here and wrestle through that stuff, thank you so much for doing that, and I honor that you did that. And I hope it's a good day for you. <laughs> and I'm laughing, too, because my message is don't do the math. And the whole point of that is like, we like to have these mathematical equations in life. We like to think that if I add this up at the beginning of January and make this list, follow this program throughout the year, at the end of the year, I will have a great year. And that's the math. And the reason I say don't do the math is because it doesn't work. <laughs> and because if we do that math sometimes, we can come up to the end of the year and feel really discouraged and really down and depleted because we didn't do it. <laughs> we didn't find that perfect equation. It didn't all add up to um, a beautiful life and a perfect life and a wonderful experience. And we're not all like fit and thin and great jobs and perfect families and et cetera, et cetera. We're just real human beings wrestling with the messy math. And today I'm going to call that, you know, the gospel math or the Jesus math um, that we're going to get into in a bit. Thank you so much for the slides. I was like totally in my head going, speaking of math... Having your slides all prepared, having awesome pro presenter people, having wonderful worship people, and slides that people can read adds up to a great worship service. But that math didn't work today. <laughs> but what does add up is just people coming with humble hearts and having a willingness to work with the struggles and people who can just ride it. And that's what we had today. So again, the math surprises us sometimes. And seeing that slide up there surprises me, and it's wonderful. <laughs> so we'll get started after all that. Um, yeah, that was kind of like, didn't even need to do my intro because you guys are probably, probably get it. But we'll go to the second slide and just break down that um, idiom in our culture. Some of you might use it. I know my husband uses it. We might say, do the math. Like, kind of inferring that we can just figure it out. It all makes sense. We can be logical about this. Adding up facts and figures in order to come to that logical con conclusion. The implicit assumption of this is that the answer will be obvious. That in fact, no examination of the facts is needed. And especially today, we're in this social media dependent world. Well, I guess not the whole world, but definitely our culture. We've developed this habit of kind of looking things up. I totally didn't think I'd be like this, but like I Google recipes now, and I feel a little guilty because I have like amazing recipe books. But I almost always look the recipe up online and use my iPad. 
And I'm wrestling with that. I'm like, I want to be old school and hardcore and use my recipe books, but it's so much easier to just look up the recipe I need in the moment. It can be hard for us to do that work of breaking things down and wrestling with the truth and figuring out what's real and what's not. We like the equation to come out clearly. We want to know the results. And why do we, want, why do we like this neat math? Because it helps us feel in control. It helps us feel like we know what's coming. It helps us feel and be kind of tricked into thinking we know what outcomes will be, and that makes us feel safe. There's not going to be any surprises or things that come out of left field and throw out the math. Photography blogger Nassim Mansurov commented on the connection between social media and control. He wrote, When looking at the cause of selfie popularity, one can understand the root cause after a quick analysis. He wrote a whole book on selfies. It's, I didn't read it, but I thought it was fascinating he did that. It has to do with having control over the image. There's a sense of security when one can take their own picture instead of getting their picture taken by someone else. People generally know when they look their best, and after get getting a tons of likes on social media, they even know which angle works for them better than others. On top of that, they have full control over the editing process, giving them the freedom to represent themselves in the most ideal way possible. And don't feel condemned if you do that. I'm not, it's not my point. But my point is just to speak to that, you know, that little you know, blurb on selfies, I think we could apply to a lot of areas of our life. It's just like, I want to, I want to control how people see me. <laughs> I want to control what people think of me. I believe this need to have the math add up and for the answers to be clear, logical, and controlled is just that need for security, that, that deep-set, I think, God-given need to feel a sense of love, to feel a sense of groundedness, to feel wholeness, to just feel a connection of authenticity with our identity and how the world sees us. And it's just so hard <laughs> to find that. Um, for each of us, and then I think also as a community and as a culture. Just as we want to control our selfies, we want to control other things. We want to control our place in the world. We want to control the way we feel. We want to control when we feel unsafe and how we can avoid that. We don't want to feel insecure or unsettled in any way. Okay, you can flip to slide three. One way we like to try to take control is New Year's resolutions. And it's really bizarre, but this is like the third year in a row I've done a New Year's-y message, which I just think it's just worked out that way, but I think it's kind of funny. So hopefully I don't repeat myself too much. But yeah, some of these images may resonate with you. And again, it's not about these are bad or wrong or no one should do any of this, but it's just that idea of you know, the balance. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we can lean too far into some of the programs and products and consumerism of how we should handle this new year coming and maybe reflect on what are some other things that might bring some deeper authenticity in our life. It can feel like we need a five-step plan for every area of our lives and undoubtedly there would be someone trying to sell us something to help us do that five-step plan or the five-step plan itself. And I'm not, again, trying to condemn or critique or shame anyone because this is stuff, often I, with my messages, I'm just figuring it out myself. Is like, what is this thing I'm trying to do? What am I trying to figure out here? What is the unhealthy side of trying to make my year look a certain way? And what is the healthy side of freedom and authenticity? How can I loosen up my desire for control 
and have still have things come out pretty nice and neat, but maybe not as linearly as I might want them to be, not quite as packaged and systematized. Alexander Schwartz, the next slide, of The New Yorker, she wrote a piece in um, December 2017, and it questioned this obsession. It's like eight pages long, and it was all awesome, but I'm sorry this is such a long quote, but it was just really good. <laughs> I'm breaking all the rules about never make slides with lots of words in them, but bear with me. In our current era of non-stop technological innovation, fuzzy wishful thinking has yielded to the hard doctrine of personal optimization. Self-help gurus need not be charlatans yielding sna or peddling snake oil. Many are psychologists with impressive academic pedigrees and a commitment to scientific methods. Tech entrepreneurs with enviable records of success in life and business are giving good advice to all. What they're selling is metrics. It's no longer enough to imagine our way to a better state of body or mind. We must now chart our progress, count our steps, log our sleep rhythms, tweak our diets, record our negative thoughts, then analyze the data, recalibrate, and repeat. In a consumerist society, we are not meant to buy one pair of jeans and then be satisfied. We're being sold on the need to upgrade all parts of ourselves all at once, including parts we did not previously know needed upgrading. There's a great deal of money to be made by those who diagnose and treat our fears of inadequacy. The good life may have sufficed for Plato and Aristotle, but it is no longer enough. We're under pressure to show that we know how to lead the perfect life. Thank you for bearing with me through that long quote, but what I love about what she's capturing there is exactly what I've been wrestling with as I come up to New Year's, and maybe some of you do too, is like, you know, products aren't bad things inherent of themselves. We live in a consumerist society, and there are wonderful things about that. There are things that have been created that help people in life. I think last time I spoke, I talked about how the innovations that are out there are helping people with disabilities to do things they would never have been able to do before and help them engage our communities in ways they couldn't. And yet again, there's this swing that sometimes it can almost feel like yeah, we're, we're being pulled into the vortex of consumerism and losing our identity and, yeah, somehow losing control in our effort to gain control. Economists estimate that the self-improvement industry takes in $10 billion a year. Okay, so I'm, try I'm kind of painting a bleak picture, but that's not my intent. But ultimately, if our ideal optimized self that I want others to see isn't just a fad, or a preference, but an economic necessity. If my, everything around me in my culture is driving me to purchase something to feel better, how can we choose to go against that flow? How can we choose to do otherwise? And this is where the math comes in. We're kind of you know, being fed this message that one effective program, some kind of product, some kind of you know, item, plus my problem, my deficiency, whatever it is that I struggle with, you know, put those two together will equal a perfect me, a better life, a better me. And that's the math that doesn't work, and that's the math that I'm going to break down a little bit today. British journalist Will Storr, the author, that's the guy who wrote that selfie book, or maybe it's another selfie book, responded to this obsession with hope, and that's what I hope to do today. This isn't a message of hopelessness, he writes. On the contrary, what it actually leads us to is a better way. Once you realize that it's all just an act of coercion, or it can be an act of coercion, that it's your culture trying to turn you into someone you can't really be, you can begin to free yourself from those demands. I love how he brings in that word freedom. 
it ties in perfectly with this message and also just for the thing we're all longing for. We are longing for control, but I think, you know, the yin and yang of that is we're also longing for freedom. In our effort to balance the scales of our year as we move into new, the new year, like in two days, with that control and clarity, I just want to look at what brings true freedom. And, you know, I think one of the places we look for that freedom is in Christ. And Paul agreed. Paul was one of the leaders of the early church. He did a lot of teaching and sharing, and he went around, and he tried to, like, help people who were just learning the Jesus way, and some of those that had been following Jesus. He tried to just help them do a little better and figure things out. So he would write these letters. And sometimes they were really good letters. Sometimes they were, like, scathing letters. But <laughs> there are wonderful things in his letters, and we can draw a lot of truths and and inspiration from them. One of those was to the church. It's called Galatians, um, the book of Galatians, and this is um, chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Here he's referring to the slavery that the Jewish people of that time were under, and that was to the laws, the religious laws, and all the physical and material ways that they had to follow those laws, the way they had to look, the way they had to act, the way they had to prove themselves, and the way they, just the things they had to go through every day that constricted their life, and if they failed in those, they just carried shame. Sometimes they were even, you know, carried the burden of being excluded from their communities and their families because they couldn't keep up to that standard. And he's just saying that's what Christ came to free them from. And in that particular community, they were wanting to kind of put those things back on in their efforts to be good Christians. And he was saying, no, don't go backwards. Keep going forwards. Of course, it was impossible to follow those laws, and it resulted in, you know, corruption, not only corruption for individuals, but community corruption, legal corruption, abuse, um, a lot of, like, oppression of the poor, and uh, that was even starting to creep into the early churches um, not long after they were formed. But Jesus transformed those religious laws and those things that were written in paper and stone, or papyrus and stone, I guess it would be, and he wanted to transform them into heart teachings and things that people did out of love and out of a rule of love that guided their hearts. This freed human beings from the list of rules into a way of life and a way of love through Jesus, or through God as um, the individuals follow Jesus. Not only love for God, but love for themselves and love for others. So how do we get freed from the slavery? I think, you know, if they had religious laws on papyrus and stone, we have a lot of cultural and social laws, how we should look, how we should talk, how, we should, how much money we should make. You know, you can probably think of a whole bunch, and maybe the pictures I had up earlier just give us a little sense of the things that we're supposed to follow, to look and be a certain way, to live up to the expectations of our cultures and communities. So how do we get freed from the consumerist messages, the metrics, the rituals? How do we create New Year's resolutions that are based on this way of love? And I know that sounds really hokey and way too simple, but the challenge of following Jesus is sometimes it's the simple things that are like the hardest to do. And believe me, 20 years into my Christian journey, <laughs> I know that truth. is like I can know these things and... Yet sometimes I just need reminders again and again to kind of fulfill them in my life. And this wasn't just an issue, you know, it's not an issue just for us today. It's not just an issue that the early Christians wrestled with. I was amazed. I was reading through the prophets this fall, and I was amazed to see parallels between my struggles with the pressures in my, you know, in my life and in our society today totally resonated with the writings of the prophets and the call. So prophets were people that God would send 
or call, in, and he'd either bring them to a new place, or he would call them out from amongst the community they were, the culture they were in, and he would give them a message to say, come on, <laughs> you know, wake up, follow me, I have this wonderful, you know, message and this purpose for you as my special people, and they would kind of, you know, fall away from that, or just choose to go a different path, or just get drawn into the different um, practices of the cultures around him. So he would send out these prophets, and um, yeah, one of those, oh, I'm skipping a part. Turn again to Paul, he said of these prophets, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And I love how that ties together. That's from Romans 15:4. One of these prophets was Haggai. He lived at a time when the Israelites were supposed to be putting all their resources and time into rebuilding the temple, and it's hard for us to really understand that because churches and temples are different things. Sometimes we think of them as parallel, but they're not. The temple was considered the dwelling place of God, and it's hard for us because we try to think, don't be materialistic, but to them, when they honored the temple, it was honoring the fact that God was supposed to dwell in their midst. God was present among them. We take that for granted because we have you know, easy access to churches and you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But back then, it wasn't like that. You had to kind of have this kind of very defined setup to have God in your midst. And he, sorry. So this prophet, hey, was living in a time where they were supposed to be building their temple back up after it got destroyed when they were taken into exile. This place where they were supposed to have God in their midst. And yet, some of the criticism that was being, you know, given to them was that they were busy building their own, rebuilding their own houses and investing in their own comforts. They've, comforts. they've just come back from being exiled and being under oppression, and now they've come back and have a little more freedom, even though they were still under a, a foreign ruler. But they were, you know, just experiencing a little lightening of their load. They'd gotten caught up in the rhythms and rituals of those nations around them that did not honor God and that did not, you know, that just you know, fell into cultural systems of oppression, abuses of the courts. Um, there's some pretty ugly stuff back then, which I won't get into because there's children present, but yeah, some pretty horrible things going on in their cultures, and the Israelites were falling into this. And so Haggai comes, and he's sent by God to give a New Year's resolution-like message, and we find it in Haggai um, chapter 1, verse 3 to 7. God said more, oh, I don't think I have that on a slide. God said more, and Haggai spoke it. How is it that it's the right time for you to live in your new fine homes while the home, God's temple, lies in ruins? A little later, God of the angel armies spoke out again. Take a good, hard look at your life. Think it over. You have spent plenty of money, but you haven't much to show for it. You keep filling your plates, but you never get filled up. You keep drinking and drinking and drinking, but you're always thirsty. You put on layer after layer of clothes, but you can't get warm. And the people who work for you, what are they getting out of it? He's speaking there to the oppression and injustice that was going on. Not much. A leaky, rusty bucket. That's what. That's why God of the angel army said, take a good, hard look at your life. Think it over. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, he could be speaking to me on January 30th in 2018, right? No, December 30th, 2018. You can go to slide five now. Haggai, like the other prophets, was sent to call the people to return to the work of fulfilling their original purpose. The purpose, as Keith spoke a lot about this in the summer, the purpose, you know, given at the time of creation, there was this intention for humanity. God's image alive in us was supposed to fill the world and just share that glory and share that freedom and share that you know, beautiful, beautiful stuff. 
that God had intended for us. And the Israelites were supposed to be a little image of that wandering around the earth, but they were struggling. So these prophets get coming. Amos, he said, I... Anyway, I had Haggai first. A thing that he says again and again in his book is, consider your ways. Amos said, I, God, will test my people with a plumb line. And does anyone know what a plumb line is? Any builders? Jacob, you're in engineering. What's a plumb line? Yeah, it's keeping things on the straight and narrow. And God used that line for how he was going to measure their lives. Zechariah said he would measure Jerusalem to see what its width and it, what, what was its length. And that was just, again, taking a measure, seeing what was going on. And he uses this imagery of building, but it's the same idea of you wouldn't build a house crooked. <laughs> Although we lived in a crooked house years ago, and it was really interesting. We had, like, walls that would open up, and water would come through, and believe me, you don't want to build a crooked house. Isaiah, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Again, this idea of come, come by the waters, consider. Just this idea of drawing to nature, which is something we do when we want to reflect. Jeremiah, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Again, speaking back to there is wisdom in the ancients. This theme of communal reflection and restoration continued into the early church through the followers of Jesus as they formed the first Christian communities. And that's kind of, again, what was coming to my mind as I was writing this up was like, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I think it says that in Lamentations. I hope I'm right on that. But just this idea that it's sort of somehow comforting to know as human beings, like we've been wrestling with this stuff for a long time. It's also kind of hard to hear that. But what it reminds me of is how gracious God is that he keeps sending these ways. He keeps making this effort to show us that he desires for us to reflect. He's gracious for, for us. He wants us to come back to him. He wants us to sort of figure out how to be real and authentic in this world in the midst of all the stuff that's going on and all the pieces of injustice and hardship and you know, ugliness in the world that want to pull us away. I love that thread that he's, he's there with us in it and just always pulling us back. Paul was very concerned with unity among Christians and for for the just and equal treatment within church communities. I love Paul. I think I'm like, he's one of, I mean, I find it hard to read him sometimes because he can be so harsh and not have the greatest opinion of women. But I also love how he's kind of fiery because I tend to be a little like that. And sometimes I just have to be like, calm down. But yet when I read his stuff, I'm like, yes, Paul, make justice happen. <laughs> As a recurring theme in his letters, he asked the churches and individual Christians to check their thoughts their motives, and their behaviors in light of the life and teachings of Jesus. You can go to the next slide. In Galatians 6, 3 to 5, these are from those letters I was telling you. He wrote to different Christians trying to make a go of it in the early church. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And he wrote this at a time when within the church there were starting to be these cliques and statuses. Some people were like, had Roman citizenship, and some others were like, had already been Jews before they came into the church. So they felt like they had a little more together than these other people that weren't following or that weren't Jewish and were kind of coming in as uh, they would call them Gentiles, but they just didn't quite have as much status. And Paul saw this happening where people were starting to measure each other. See, they're just like us today. It's really hilarious. And he, they were starting to measure each other, and he's like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. <laughs> like, measure. And one thing we say in our house a lot, which we got from the Chronicles of Narnia, was like, stick to your own story. It's when, I think it's Susan's looking in the mirror, and she's all worried about her sister, and her sister's so pretty and has a boyfriend and blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's from the movie, but it's in the book too. <laughs> 
we also have the audiobook, so it gets confusing. But there's this idea of like, no, stick to your own story. I think the lion's face comes up and it's like, woof, stop focusing on someone else's life. And that's kind of basically the same thing Paul's doing here. The next one, Romans 12:3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. And finally, 1 Corinthians 11:28. Let a person examine himself then and, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And what's really interesting, that might seem like a weird one to stick in there, but the reason he said this was because there was issues of prejudice and discrimination that had crept into the mealtimes, just in the common meals as well as into the communion meal that the early church was celebrating. And he's reminding them that they needed to stop it, that the whole point of communion was not to have like some people at the back of the line, and I think Keith had brought this up in a message recently, of just how corruption and like that judginess and you know, the wealthier people were getting the better parts of the meal, and then the poor people were at the back, and there was people, like, sick and dying who weren't being cared for properly. And Paul, again, he's like, hey, think of who gave us the bread and the cup. It was Jesus, and he didn't live like that, and he didn't teach us to be that way. So why are we letting this corruption and this ugliness sneak into the church? It sounds like the earliest Christians had to make a whole lot of New Year's resolutions. <laughs> of course, Jesus himself was constantly calling people to examine their lives and behaviors. But you know what fascinates me about Jesus? And I forget what the statistics were. Not statistics, but there's a number. And if you, any of you know it, you can yell it out. But it's like hundreds and hundreds different. He asked like 300 and some questions in his three years on, on earth that were recorded in his travels and interactions. You read in the scriptures. And the only time he gave like a direct answer was like three times. Like when someone said, what about this? And he said, this is the answer. The rest of the time he asked a ton of questions. And again, just showing that Jesus was interested in getting people to reflect. Not just to come and get all the answers from him, but to like wrestle and do that hard work we were talking about earlier of thinking it through and looking at their behaviors and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's like wearisome, but I love that idea that... You know, the person we're supposed to be modeling, you know, had that same grace that we see throughout the, throughout the thread of the scriptures to just, yeah, come back and consider. Jesus could be a prophet, and he certainly did at times, like, <laughs> rebuke the people who were corrupt. He was a wonderful teacher and preacher. He could stand on a mountainside and give a huge message. But the way, the, the thing he did most was just walk alongside people and live with them and show the way. And again, as I said before, the way of love and that way that life and love connect. He lived his resolutions every day of the year. And this was his way of showing us how to follow them. You can go to the next slide, which I can't. Oh, yeah. I didn't have any intro to that, but yeah, these are some of Jesus' words which I'll read to you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'm just thinking of those of us who are weary and burdened today. And hearing, imagine hearing these words from Jesus, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
I just think that's beautiful. Sometimes I don't need to ramble on. I can just read the scriptures. <laughs> but I am going to ramble on a little bit with a commentary from N.T. Wright on that passage, which I found really encouraging. Jewish writings had for a millennium and more spoken warmly about the wisdom of the wise, which we've been talking a little bit here today. God gave wisdom to those who feared him. A long tradition of Torah study and piety indicated that those who were devoted to learning the law and writing out its finer points would become wise. They would ultimately know God best. For the average Jew of Jesus' day, this put wisdom way out of their reach. Just like it might put being a brain surgeon or a test pilot out of reach for most of us today. You needed to be a scholar with a rabbi trained in languages and literature with the time and leisure to ponder and discuss the weighty, complicated matters. But Jesus said, actually, we don't need to do all that. He sliced through all that with a stroke. He declared you needed to be like a little child. He had come to know his father in a way a son does, not through books, but by living in his presence, listening to his voice, learning from him, and as an apprentice does the master, watching and imitating. He was now discovering that the wise and learned were getting nowhere, and that the little people, the poor, the sinners, the tax collectors, the ordinary probably the women, were discovering more of God simply by following him, Jesus, than the learned specialists who had declared that what he was doing did not fit with their complicated theories. Wasn't that a bit daunting for those followers? Isn't it rather forbidding to discover that the true God can only be known through Jesus? No. It might have felt like that if he had been someone else, but this Jesus was different. He had a platform from which... Sorry. It gave him the platform from which to issue what was still a welcoming and encouraging invitation, one of the welcomest ever offered. Come to me, he said, and I'll give you rest. The Pharisees had spoken of people being called to carry the yoke of the Torah. That's why Jesus is countering that, that heaviness of like, carry the weight of our laws and rules and history and culture and traditions. And, and Jesus came and said, actually, no, just follow me. Just be like me. How could following Jesus really be that easy? I ask myself that all the time. Didn't he say himself that people had to be prepared to leave behind all their possessions and their families and even their life? He did say that. But the ease and joy and rest and refreshment which was offered all spring from this inner character, his gentleness, his warmth to all who turned to him. All those who had been weighed down by burdens, moral, physical, emotional, financial, you can probably think of a few in your own head that apply to your own life, the burdens you carry today and the burdens you want to fix for the new year. He's offering what he has to offer himself. And like, sometimes you can just go, okay, drop mic, N.T. Wright said it all. <laughs> I just thought that was beautiful. All right, so why do we struggle if it's supposed to be so easy? <laughs> in light of what's going on in our city, we've had a rough, rough few years. We just had a rough, rough December. You know, there's a lot of hostility and racism and ugliness and pain going on in our city, in our country, in the world. With, in light of this harshness, we're tempted to kind of say, I can't really do anything about this. Or I might just want to be in that ignorance is bliss place, or it's not my problem. And that's why the math doesn't add up, because it can shut us down, and it can feel like that law and legalism when we try to do that math. How can resolving to be like a child possibly improve life on a grand scale or even in my own personal life? I would suggest it's as simple as unmathematical love. 
There's a beautiful um, passage that I found about New Year's from a guy named George Petros. I don't know who he is. He's a counselor, a marriage counselor in wellness ministries. And he has some suggestions. He took... Uh, he took the 1 Corinthians passage about love and he put it into some new language and I'm going to share that with you in closing today. And, you know, I'm not saying here, these are the resolutions you should have, but if you have made resolutions, keep them. If you have sticky notes on your walls, keep them. I have a, every year, me and Ryan come up with a theme for the year. We've, we've I don't know if we're going to have the same one this year. We haven't had a chance. He's been snow plowing so much, we haven't had a chance to talk. But my theme for this year is, you know, walk in the light. Um, and I use that, and I do make lists, and I do think of ways I can do that. And so I'm all for making whatever system works for you. I might not be so much for going into debt to do that. And I think that's the balance I'm trying to strike. Find what works for you. Find it in light of the message of God. Find it in light of the scriptures. Find it in light of those around you that care about you and you know might have wise counsel. Find it in whatever way you knew to. Maybe you can meet with Keith and he comes back. But just find a way to kind of set yourself up for a great year, but not in a way that condemns you if there is a disaster or a health issue or a loss that hits a month from now or three months from now or next fall. Um, yeah, think on that. I'm thinking on it. I guess I'm just sharing what I'm doing. As we step into, these are the words of George Petros, anyway, sorry, I always get rambling. As we step into the new year, let's reflect on what Christ himself offered as a new resolution for life in general. In John 13, 34 to 35, he says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. As we read in the scriptures, Jesus' resolution for us to love in a certain way is his way. And as we scroll through our lists and resolutions, perhaps we might consider how this love will look. How we love. You can put the last slide up now. This is from 1 Corinthians 13, 34 to 35. Live generously. Love is great-hearted and unselfish. Seek emotional wellness. Love is not emotionally reactive. Practice humility. Love does not seek to draw attention to itself, and it does not accuse or compare. Find ways to serve others. <clears throat> Love does not seek to serve itself at the expense of others. Live out justice and reconciliation. Love does not take pleasure in other people's suffering, but rejoices when the truth is revealed and meaningful life is restored. Accept yourself and others. Love always bears reality as it is, <laughs> sadly and wonderfully. Extending mercy to all people in every situation. Encourage, give courage. And whenever I think of the word encourage, I remember that picture of the people coming. Moses had to keep his arms up in one of the stories from the ancient writings. And he was getting weary, but if his arms went down, the, the battle would not be in their favor. So his friends, companions came and lifted his arms. And whenever I see the word encourage, I always think, give courage, lift one another's arms up, which I also think of as a way of carrying the burdens um, with one another and for one another at times. Okay, where was I? Give courage to yourself and others. Love is faithful in all things. It, constantly, it is constantly hopeful and meets whatever comes with immovable forbearance and steadfastness. And when you fall at, fail at all of the above, and for me that'll be about mid-February, <laughs> maybe sooner, seek forgiveness, rest, recover, and repeat. Love never quits. Thank you.